Well, I want to say something about uh, an announcement in your bulletin that is entitled, Prepared for Departure to Heaven. Um, Two weeks from this morning and three weeks from this morning, from 9 to 10, uh, we're not going to have any classes uh, for adults. We're all going to meet in here because there are about six different aspects that we could really help the people we leave behind when we die that just need to be in place. And uh, there's no reason to get superstitious about this. I mean, you may identify with Woody Allen, who famously said, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) You're going to be there. I will be there. And we leave people that I trust we love. And... um, And it just makes it a lot easier on them. Quite frankly, it puts them in a place to to celebrate your life and to grieve your life without getting involved in so many details and, quite frankly, a lot of money if you haven't thought this through ahead of time. And uh, so we're going to spend two Sunday mornings, two hours, and I'm going to share this with a couple of other other people um, who are better at their particular aspect than I am. And we're just gonna we're gonna walk us through it. I just I just pray that you'll come and that uh, you'll put these things in place. And it doesn't make any difference if you're Mario's age, or if you're George Pappas's age, wherever George is. It just doesn't make any difference. It needs to be in place because we don't know when it's going to happen. And I've just walked with too many people down this path, and I've experienced those who had it in place. And what a beauty that is. And I've seen those who had nothing in place and wanted to live in denial that the loved one was going to die. And that is just not the place you want to be, and it's not the place you want to live. Okay? So there's the deal. That's what's going on there. So I, Dennis called me yesterday on the way to the emergency room, Dennis Cole, and uh, <laughs> told me what happened. Oh, man, that's one hurting puppy today. And, uh, and so anyway, uh, we hung up, and I got to thinking, one of my first things I ever did at this church was Camilla and I and our, I don't know, four or five kids, Bethany, our oldest, was like 11, hooked up our pop-up, and we went down along Ortega Highway because the young adult group wanted to go down and do rappelling. And I had done lots of repelling. I'd instructed repelling, both at Cal Poly as well as in the military. And um, so I said, let's go. Let's go. I can, can do this. I know how to do it. I know how to do it safely. So I got there early with somebody, and I don't remember who the person is anymore. And uh, so we went out, and we found uh, an appropriate spot, and we got everything hooked up. And I got all hooked up, and I stepped out to the ledge. And I took one big leap. And when my feet hit the rock, my ankle said, you idiot. You're out of shape and you weigh more than you used to weigh. And you used to be able to do this all the time, but you're going to pay. You're going to pay. I barely got back to the campsite, and I sat there in a chair the whole weekend. And thankfully, God gives grace to the humble. 
and He humbles us even when we don't want to be humbled. And it was probably the best lesson of the whole camping trip. And so I told Dennis yesterday, <laughs> his spirits are amazing in the midst of this. I said, you know, Dennis, you're just not as young as you used to be. <laughs> he says, I know, I know. So, I mean, I'd still love to go rappelling today, but they don't make a rope strong enough to hold me anymore. So, anyway, <laughs> let's look at the one who is never changing and never gets hurt at all um, and is so much greater. Grab something with the Scriptures on it and turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And we're beginning to work our way through this book that just proclaims the glorious person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, we're going to be in the last part of verse 2 and verse 3 this morning. But let me read for us this whole passage. And on the, on the, on the screen there in front of you, if you're unfamiliar with the Scriptures, are two easy ways to find the passage that we're in. You can grab the Bible out of the pew in front of you, and we're on page 1196. Or if you want an electronic version, there's an easy place to get it. I'll never forget my early years of becoming a follower of Christ when I had no clear where anything was in the Bible. And uh, boy, I lived in that index, looking at what page we were on. And uh, so that's what that's there for. Let me read uh, the whole section that kind of goes together, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. And let's go down to the middle part of chapter 2, verse 3. You can follow along as I read. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to you, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain." And they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. To, but to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. 
For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let me pray. Father, uh, thank you for this great salvation. And no matter how much we know about it today, there's more to know because there's more of you. And so we just ask you to do a supernatural work and that would be to open our eyes to see more of the glories of who the Lord Jesus is. For we know that as we behold him, we will be changed. And so we ask you to do that. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. So last week we began and looked at the first verse and a half and uh, just made the point that God has spoken. He is a God who communicates. There's some secret things that belong to him. Uh, But everything that any person needs to know about who he is and what it means to live in relationship with him, uh, God has made it clearly, clearly known. And he hasn't just said things once. He said it sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of times. In the Old Testament, up through the, uh, John the baptizer, he did it through the prophets. And then the Lord Jesus Christ came. And Jesus Christ is the final and full communication from God to people, to all of humanity, and to each one of us. In fact, you'll notice in verse 2, it says, in these last days has spoken to, and what's the next word there? Us has spoken to us. This is not a subject to be studied and and regurgitated back on a test. This is the living God who speaks to us. It has very personal application to it. And we saw how this verse just reiterates what God the Father said as Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus was transfigured before them and Peter was comparing Peter, Elijah and Moses to Jesus and the Father speaks from heaven and says, no, 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 no. This is my beloved son. You listen to him. And so we just made the point that God has spoken We need to listen to him. We need to listen, particularly and uniquely to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no difference between what the Father says and what the Son says. Now, he's going to go on throughout the book, and he's going to talk about why he should be listened to. And we're going to come at it from every single angle as we go through this book. But in the next verse and a half, he lists seven reasons to listen to Jesus Christ. Seven reasons. Look at them. Number one, whom he appointed heir of all things. Number two, through whom also he made the world. Number three, he is the radiance of his glory. Number four, he's the exact representation of his nature. Number five, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Number six, he had made purification of sins. And number seven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Seven descriptions of this glorious Christ in one and a half verses. I mean, this is just an amazing declaration of who he is. Now he's trying to prove the point that he's greater than the prophets 
and that he's greater than the angels, but we're going to look at these seven statements just as standalone statements because you'll see he's not just greater than the prophets. He's not just greater than the angels. He's not just greater than the priests. He's, he's greater beyond degree to anybody and everything that is possibly imagined for these seven reasons. Now, there's nothing fancy about the outline. I just took the phrases, and they're in your notes. And so let's just walk through each one of these seven things. So God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. And I just put the names in there because of which person of the Trinity, the Father or Jesus, because it's sometimes hard to keep track of which ones the pronouns referred to. So, Jesus, the Father appointed heir of all things. Now, what is an heir? An heir is one who has full authority, full control, full possession over whatever is described. And inheritance describes when the previous one dies, what the heir gets. And what we're told here, and we get some insights into the relationship between the Father and the Son even in these uh, couple of verses, is that the Father appointed Jesus the heir. He put Jesus in charge of everything, authority, control, and possession over what? What's it say? Over all things. He is the heir of all things. Now that would include everything that is, everything that has been, everything that will be, as well as the time and space in which they exist. It includes everything. It includes everything that we have ever seen. And you can just take the compilation of human history. Everything that a person has ever seen, Jesus is the heir of. Everything that we've seen through telescopes, everything that we see through the Hubble scope, and on the other extreme, everything that we see through microscopes or electron microscopes or whatever on the microscopic level, everything, angels, everything, everything in the highest heaven, everything in the deepest sea, everything that we have seen, everything that is seeable, even things that are unseeable. He is heir of all things. They are His possession. He is the authority over them. He is in control of them. And even the time in which they exist is His. Now, I thought as we went through this, I just would give us a chance to respond on each one of these in praise and thanksgiving to God. Because each one of them can stand alone. Each one of them are amazingly noteworthy. And so Christ is heir of all things. Why don't you just silently to the Father, to Jesus, say thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are heir of all things. And maybe mention some things that you've seen. Maybe mention some of the things that you've seen about solar systems. How they're expanding how they keep finding more. And just say, thank you, Jesus. They're yours. They're yours. You are the heir of all things.
He is the glorious Christ. He is the glorious Christ. Well, not only is he heir of all things, but as it goes on to say, that through whom also he made the world. Uh, Jesus is the one that the Father gave the charge to make the world, to create the world. Now, we all know how to make things. We've all made things. Uh, A synonym for this would be create. Of course, the uniqueness of God is he can make stuff out of nothing, and he can take stuff that is and make something that nobody else could make. And we read so much about this in Genesis 1 and 2, don't we? He can take part out of a man, and he created a woman. And then from then on, he takes from a man and a woman coming together, and he creates new people. I mean, this is the craziest deal in the world. And it's not just biology. It's something that God is involved with. And so he can create things out of nothing. He can create things from something that is so much greater and different. Um, And that's what he does. And anybody who is wrestling with that, not only should they read Genesis 1 and 2, but especially if you're having a hard time and you've suffered a lot of loss, and you don't understand where God is, you should read Job 38 through 42. None of us have ever experienced the loss that Job experienced. Now, we may be in some of the physical pain that he was experiencing, but you put all that together, and and you read Job 38 to 42, and you have God walk Job through who he is And how does he prove the greatness of who he is? He takes Job back and tells us things about how he created things. He is the creator of all things through whom he made the world. Now, this was important in the first century to be continually be reiterated. In the first century, there was all kinds of beliefs about creation, all kinds of creation accounts. Some of it attributed to gods and goddesses, uh, even, um, you know, shortly before our nation was formed, and even maybe some of our founding fathers were deists. They would say God started it, but then he's just wound it up, and it continues to move on. And so there's always been all kinds of different creation accounts. And, And here's where God just steps in and says, you need to know something. I created it. I gave to the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is the one who has created and made all things. Unless you think this system is based upon faith and those other belief systems aren't, that is a total lie because none of us were there, and none of it can be reproduced. And so it takes faith. And I think the most easy faith to exercise is the faith in God for lots and lots of reasons. This comes up a lot of times in Scripture. So, for example, we have, going back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We talked about that last week, that the, the very Word, Word defines communication, that Jesus was the communication of God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, what? Nothing came into being that has come into being. That is all exclusive and inclusive, that the Lord Jesus Christ is 
the one who made all things. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. Often that terminology is used to describe angelic beings, uh, both good and holy as well as evil. All things have been created through him, and all things have been created for him. Now, you'll notice in both of these passages that it talks about all things, all things being made by him. And actually, the word that is used in uh, Hebrews 2, 1 verse 2, that word world isn't the typical word for world. That, the word, Greek word for world typically is cosmos, which you'll recognize in different English words. This one is aeon, which literally means time, space, matter, energy, people, all things. In other words, this word for world describes the time and the space in which things exist as well as the things that exist themselves. And so it's making a very clear statement that God in Christ has created all things, all of time and everything in time. Jesus Christ has made all of that. Now, it's important just to be honest about this and to recognize that none of our pea brains can understand this. And if I just offended you, just get over it. <laughs> um, I mean, you think about it. How many scientists are working on understanding the solar system and have in the past? And you think, I'm going to wrap my brain around that? Or take it to the other extreme. How many scientists are studying the atom, trying to figure out what those forces are that hold it together or in all of those different aspects? Or take the cell in the body, or the rocks, or the oceans, or the plants or the animals. I mean, how many thousands of really smart people are studying each one of those areas? And we're supposed to figure it all out? Oh, come on. Let's be honest. It's bigger than any, and it's bigger than all of them all together. And the beauty is that we know the one who's not only the heir of all things, but has created all things, time and everything that is in time. Why don't you just silently just say to the Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you for creating all things. You might even say, Lord, thank you for creating and list some people. Or maybe list some of the building materials that make up your home that provide you such a nice place to live. He is the glorious Christ. The next little phrase actually switches gears a little bit and talks more about who he is, the next two phrases, about who he is in his essence. He is the radiance of his glory. Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory. Now, the word radiance literally emphasizes that, it, it, that it's a brightness that comes from within. It's the opposite of the word reflection. Reflection means light comes and it bounces off to something else. Radiance means it comes from within. 
And so we might uh, understand this by understanding that the sun, our sun, our earth sun, is radiant. Our moon is what? Reflective. It is reflective. We get reflective light from the moon and radiant light from the sun. And here's the point. As we know the sun by its radiance, and as we experience the benefits of the sun by this radiant light, and by that I mean the S-U-N, so we know the Father's glory by the S-O-N. And we experience all the goodness of God's glory by His beloved Son. Now, when, when Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration, they grappled with how to describe the radiance of the Lord Jesus Christ, how to describe His glory. And so they said, and His garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. That's the best they could do. How do you capture the radiance of the Lord Jesus Christ when He is transfigured and given a measure of His real glory on that mountain? If we go back to, to John chapter 1 and go down a couple more verses, in verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In Jesus, there is this radiance of life, and one of the metaphors for it is that it is light. It is light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, reemphasizing that point, yet the world did not know Him. Now, it goes on to explain more of why that is true. But Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, even as the sun gives us its light and is the radiance of what the sun is. You might remember that the apostle uh, Saul was on the road to Damascus when he had a radical experience with Jesus Christ. And as he was proclaiming how that happened one day to a whole bunch of Jews as he'd just been arrested, he said this, but it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, what's the brightest part of the day? Noontime. A very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. What would it take for something brighter than the sun to flash? And there was a voice from heaven that accompanied it. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And of course, he responded, Lord, who are you? And God was making it very clear who he was and who Saul was and what accountability is all about and who he's responsible to. And as a result of that, he was blind. Now, was that because of the physical brightness? Was that because God wanted him to think about what had just happened? We don't know exactly, but it blinded him. Some years later, uh, Paul uses this description to capture how a person becomes a follower of Jesus. He says this to the believers at Corinth. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, that's a very pregnant last phrase there. To give the light of the knowledge 
of the glory of God. God shines into our hearts, and we see some of the radiance of the glory of God, and how do we see it? In the face of Christ. And when a person experiences that, they become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the experience you're going to have. That's what God will do. We often say he turned the light bulb on. I get it. What has been confusing, what I've been fighting about, I now get it. And so this is the experience. Now he goes on to say that not only is he the radiance, but he is the exact representation of his nature. Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the Father's nature. And so this word exact representation was used of minting coins. And here's the deal with a coin. If I look at this quarter, I can tell you exactly what the die looks like that made this quarter without ever seeing the die. Without ever seeing it, I know what the die looks like. Jesus shows us exactly who the Father is without ever seeing him. He is the exact representation of the Father. You might remember that at the very end of Jesus' life in John 14, he was with those inner disciples, and uh, they were displaying some of how much they did not get about who he was. And uh, Philip asked Jesus, uh, will you just show us the Father? Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not Come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I've been three and a half years with you, Philip. If you've seen me, you've what? Seen the Father. You've seen the Father. We learn so much about who God is in the Old Testament, but when Jesus Christ was on earth, all of who God is, is, is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So we read the gospel accounts, and as we see Jesus and how he relates to people, we know how the Father relates to people. We see how he, he comes to the people who are beat up and brokenhearted or stuck in places or hungry for God, and he shepherds them along the way, and we see how he deals with people who are, are propagating lies about who God is, and we see the Father in his view and the way he deals with those people. We see how the Father deals with nature. We see how he deals with bread with a hungry crowd. We see the Father because we have seen the Son. The Father and Son have exactly the same nature and substance. And so this church leader, 1050 BC or A.D., said the sun is never seen without its effulgence, without its radiance, without its brightness, nor the Father without the sun. If you've seen the Father, if you've seen the Son, you have seen the Father. I know in talking to some uh, who are Roman Catholics, who are come out of a Roman Catholic background, one of the things that they've picked up or been taught is you don't want to go to the Father. He's harsh. He's immovable. 
In fact, you may not even want to go to Jesus. He's probably an easier sell. This is kind of like the dad-mom thing, right? Who am I going to ask for permission to do this? Or who am I going to tell? I just broke that. And so they created Mary. She's the soft one. You go to her. That's blasphemous. Or the saints. That's blasphemous. No, there is no difference between the Father and the Son. They are exactly the same. Exactly the same. The next thing goes on and takes us back to creation, actually. He upholds all things by the word of His power. He upholds. It's a continuous action verb. And there's two aspects to this. He upholds. Remember, He's, he's heir of all things. He created all things. This is talking about His sustaining, His ongoing, moment-by-moment involvement in all things. And, and there's two aspects to this that only God can pull off. One is that every single thing that is, is exactly what it should be in the time and space in which it is, but it is also working towards what future history should be. And so it's accomplishing exactly its intention, God-designed purpose in the moment, but it is also moving history to where it should be. Jesus Christ is the one who upholds all these things. So outside New York City, outside Rockefeller Center, there is a statue, bronze statue there, of one of the Greek gods, Atlas, holding up the world. Jesus is not Atlas. He's much greater than Atlas. And again, this isn't deism. The Bible makes it very clear that Jesus Christ is very active in sustaining everything by what? By the word of His power. The, the word for word is not logos, the typical word that's used of creating things and revelation. This is a word that talks about command. So, for example, we tend to think of things like gravity as physical laws, and by that, they are physical laws, but by that, we attribute impersonality to them. We would say there's no person behind that law. It is just something that is. It's just built in. It's mechanical. But the reality is gravity continues because Jesus Christ upholds that law by the word of His power. Gravity is not impersonal. It's part of His care for us. If you will, and this may not, I mean, this isn't a perfect analogy, but if you will, it's like, it's like dad and mom providing a home for their children to live in. The children take it for granted and just assume it always is while mom and dad work to sustain it. And oh, how it needs constant sustaining. And so the reality is, I mean, just think about it. What would Jesus say, forget those human beings on earth? Gravity, cease. What would happen? Well, this would make quite a movie, wouldn't it? I mean, even if he did it for a brief moment, people, buildings, bugs, planets, 
in its place in the solar system, oceans would jump out of where they are. I mean, after a few moments of us each freaking out, we wouldn't have anything to worry about because we'd be dead. Now, for those of us who know Christ, it just got way better. John MacArthur says, the world is a cosmos instead of chaos, an ordered and reliable system instead of an erratic and unpredictable muddle only because Jesus Christ sustains it. We can say that in a similar way to how traffic laws were created by authorities for the well-being of those driving, and they sustained them, they enforced them. So Jesus created laws of the universe for those who live here and they are personally sustained by Him. And one of the great beauties of scientists and doctors and experts in all these fields who know the Lord Jesus Christ is, boy, they can study the law, but they can rejoice in the One who sustains it. And know that gravity is part of God's personal care for you and me today. Isn't that great? The atom, the forces that hold an atom together are holding together because of Jesus Christ's personal care for you and me. Isn't this great? Oh man, how we have a Savior. How we have one who greatly, greatly loves us. Well, all of that's been on who He is and on the positive, proactive end of creating and air and sustaining. This next one moves into how He fixes what's messed up, me and you. When he had made purification of sins, made is the same word that talks about the creation of things. Uh, It's in the past tense, so when he had accomplished purification of sins. The word, very word uh, purification emphasizes what? It emphasizes the defiling effects of sin. It it emphasizes how when you and I sin, whether it's in our thoughts or whether it's in our words or whether it's in our actions, it pollutes. It pollutes us. It stains us. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet... And scarlet was something that was a color and a dye that was, you couldn't remove it. Once it was there, it could not be removed. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Jesus has made purification for our sins. The gospel song that some of you will quickly realize and you can jump in as soon as you do. Ask the question, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. 
No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This will be a main theme as we go through the book of Hebrews. And finally, when he had made purifications of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, this is going to become a really major theme in this book because all of the priests, they served in the temple and there were no seats in the temple because the purification for sins was never complete. And whatever belief system people believe in, apart from Christ, it's never complete. Any belief system, look at any religious belief system, how do you get rid of the pollution the sin brings? How do you get rid of the consequences of sin? And it is only in Christ that purifications for sin is so complete that the one who made the purification has sat down of the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 10, 11 and 12, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The right hand, obviously, is the power of position and authority. Here the Father is referred to as the majesty, and we learn a few things from other scriptures about Jesus' position at the right hand. He is our advocate. In other words, he's our lawyer who represents us and defends us. And anytime we sin, he says, I paid for that one. 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 And Romans 8.34 says, So who can ever condemn us? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So not only does Jesus hold gravity together to care for us, he's at the right hand of the Father praying for us right now. Right now. Oh, the glorious Christ. What a glorious Christ we have. There is no comparison. And so we join the psalm songwriter from uh, old and just inviting other people, oh, come, let us, what? Adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Him cry. Christ, who is the heir of all things. Christ, who created all things. Christ, who is the radiance of God the Father. Christ, who is the same exact nature of God the Father. Christ, who sustains all things. Christ, who purified us from our sins. And Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. Won't you stand with me, please? And those of us who know this, let's sing that again.
And those of you that have never put your faith and trust in Christ, we're singing this as an invitation for you to do that right now. We're asking you, oh, come. Oh, come. Come and give your life to adoring this Christ. Let's sing it together as an invitation to any of you who have not yet come to adore Christ. May we, even as we sing this, you move and embrace Christ as the Christ. Oh, come, let us adore.